Yeah, I've, I'd only really read this, Dark Phoenix, and the new X-Men line, and then Jonathan Hickman's House of X, Power of the Ten came out, and I have been obsessively reading X-Men that entire time. Yeah, I also don't remember the first time I read this. Would have definitely been in, like, essential black and white volume that I had as a kid. I know I've reread it several times since. I suppose just for listeners' benefits, if there's anyone who's, like, not actually a huge comic book reader or, or who otherwise hasn't read this, this issue is literally the reason that you know who the X-Men are, because they started in the 60s, they flopped, they got canceled, and then after half a decade of just being a reprint book that no one really cared about, this issue came out, and it's where all the characters, or at least, you know, a lot of the characters that people know came in. This is the first appearance of Nightcrawler, Storm, Colossus. It's also the introduction of Wolverine to the team, and it's essentially replacing the original all-white American team with a group of mutants who are more picked from across the world. A lot of it's just different flavors of white, but there's a couple exceptions to that. Um, Essentially, plot-wise, the conceit of the book is that the original X-Men have gone on a mission after Professor X uses Cerebro, detects a super powerful mutant, and it's just like, X-Men, go investigate. Weird shit happens, they all get knocked out, Cyclops ends up waking up on the Blackbird, I don't know if it's called the Blackbird yet, on the X-Jet, on his way back to New York City, just like, what the fuck happened, what happened to the other X-Men, what attacked us? And so Professor X is just like, well, I'll assemble a team, and by assemble a team, I mean I will go around the world, be condescending to all of these mutants, racistly condescending to the ones that aren't white. And I will say, fuck what you have going on right now. Come help rescue my students. They do so. It turns out that the island itself is the mutant Krakoa that walks like a man. There's some weird comic book science and how they beat it, where they basically just defy gravity. And it ends on the notes of 13 mutants all crammed in the X-Jet. None of them like each other. They've been fighting this entire time. And it just ends with Angel going, what are we going to do with all these X-Men? Yeah, it's a really simple story, uh, considering how much time it takes. But most of it's just introducing the characters and like starting you with a little hint of their personality. Which, um, yeah, some of them, the personality is pretty simple. As far as I can tell, Banshee is just Irish. Um, he manages to say both Faith and Begora in this comic separately. And he only has, like, ten lines or something like that. Alright, so the issue opens with Nightcrawler, um, which, that's probably my favorite of the introduction sequences. Um, mostly because, well, it does seem to be set about a hundred years earlier than the rest of the comic for some reason. Um, and Nightcrawler's already wearing his outfit. Is that... I guess it's a figure war at the circus. Um, it's very funny later on because Xavier gives them all fancy new outfits and commented on. Except Nightcrawler's just wearing the same thing he was wearing. So presumably this is just Xavier made an exact duplicate of his clothes. Maybe. Um, but he's being chased by a mob because of course Nightcrawler, if you're vaguely familiar with X-Men, 
looks kind of like the devil but blue. And then Xavier freezes them all with his mind as the like about to beat Nightcrawler to death, it looks like, and offers him a way out. It's probably the least aggressive, I'd say. Xavier's maybe maybe his meeting with Sunfire and Banshee, I guess, but he really knew that. This is probably his best job at meeting someone new. Yeah, it's I think it's an interesting way to start the issue because it immediately brings the idea of like prejudice and danger into the mix because it's Nightcrawler getting attacked by this mob and after Charles like does the whammy on everyone and like stops time or whatever, they have this brief conversation of just like, Can you help me be normal? and just Chuck being like what would you want to be after that? And like Kurt says something to the effect of, if you can help me be a whole Kurt Wagner, then I'll go with you. And it's just very immediately like, we're going to start with the mutant who is visibly a mutant, who can never pass for human. And we're basically saying, we're going to do stuff with the idea of mutants as a minority metaphor beyond what the 60s did in most extents. Uh, yeah, I think this is the only bit of the issue that really gets into that, aside from, like, some brief stuff with Wolverine, but that might be mostly hindsight for the Wolverine stuff, and the way he relates to the Canadian government, uh, later on. Oh, actually, Wolverine's the next thing. Um, yeah, so Xavier has apparently convinced the Canadian government to let him talk to one of their top agents, who, of course, dresses in yellow spandex. Yellow spandex. Blue tidy-whities. Heidi Blueies, I guess, <laughs> over top of his yellow spandex. And it's just like Professor Xavier's presumably done whatever mind stuff he needs to do to get into this government facility, to get into the room of Wolverine and Wolverine's boss. And he's just like, Wolverine, I want to hire you. And the boss is like, you can't do that. At which point Wolverine cuts his tie in half, gives him, it's not technically the middle finger claw, but it's just the threatening little knife play that he will be so known for. Just being violent, like I think the key point of this intro is just that Wolverine has a comparatively short fuse compared to the other characters, and just seems fed up with dealing with the Canadian government later in the run will know that this means like working with Alpha Flight and stuff, but he doesn't need any convincing. Like Chuck just shows up and is just like, come with me, and he's just like, done. Yeah, the um, the, the most interesting line to me is like the bit where he's, the government guy's like, oh, we've invested a great deal of money and time turning you into what you are now. It's funny how early they had the whole Wolverine backstory, like, but just a bit figured out, like, that's all you really need to know. All of the nonsense later was just so unnecessary because it's like, yeah, okay. He's been weaponized, presumably at least partially against his will, and now he's found an escape route. Yeah, it's like, it's hard reading these in hindsight and just thinking, like, how much was already established and how much did they know? Which to some degree, you know, like, we don't necessarily know what was in the writer's minds already, but it's interesting to just be like, yeah, there are indications of he is a government project unto himself, but what does that mean? And just imagining the world where there's Wolverine, but the term Weapon X doesn't exist is very strange, you know? <laughs> well, he's not even Logan yet. Yeah, like, he's just Wolverine. He's just some dude that fought the Hulk. He isn't Logan, especially is not James Howlett. It would be nice to go back to an age where he was not James Howlett. 
we didn't need James Howlett. Yeah, this is his second issue, right? Like, I know he was in that one Hulk issue, but did, did he show up in anything else between those? I don't believe so, although I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, oh, my favorite bit comes here, because now Xavier goes to meet with Banshee. Um, so, for context, so far we've seen a German character who's in Germany, a Canadian character who's in Canada, and now an Irish character who is in Nashville, Tennessee. Does Banshee, did Banshee move to America or something? I thought he was still in Ireland. He's got a castle in Ireland in later comics. This is so weird. Yeah, I have not read his 60s appearances, so I don't know what his deal is. If he was like already living in America and that was explained, or if we're just to take it here that, okay, he really likes country music. He flew all the way across the pond to go to Nashville and watch whatever act is playing. Maybe it's watching Dolly Parton. We don't know. But it's just two panels. Also, like, everyone else has gotten multiple pages at this point. But because Banshee's an existing character, he gets two panels of just Professor Rex, like, invading his trip to the opera or whatever the hell and just saying, I would not go to the opera in Nashville. (laughs) Yeah, the country music hall or whatever the fuck. But but just being like, hope that ticket was refundable, because it's time to go. And after which point, uh, I guess before we move on, did you have anything else to say about Banshee or not really? She reminds me of that cop from the 60s Batman TV show, the Irish one, because he's just got the exact same personality. But yeah, other than that, not really. Banshee doesn't do much in this issue, he just screams a lot. Yeah, being Irish and screaming are his defining character traits. If this comic didn't have the comics code already all over it, he would be drinking whiskey. Yeah, probably snuck some into the theater or the music hall, whatever, just right off panel, just to his side. Um, He's Irish, doesn't even have like a separate personality trait. Like Wolverine is Canadian and grumpy, Banshee is Irish and Irish. After him comes Storm, who, like her, has a great introduction, but I think she also has a just notably interesting one where Storm appears to be living as a goddess, whether she actually, like, believes herself to be one or is just, like, allowing the people around her to refer to herself as one. But she's in Kenya. People come complaining to her about the drought they've been going through and needing rain, and they want to, like, treat her as a goddess and, like, make all these sacrifices for her. And she's just like, don't kill your goat. I've got it. And we just get these lovely panels of her sweeping through the air and just bringing the rain down, bringing the downpour down. It's just mother nature, power of the earth and weather. She really, like, displays the full extent of what she can do, more so than a lot of the other characters do immediately. And... It's just pretty. It's cool. And then Professor X shows up and is just like, listen, you have a good gig here, but you could come to the outside world where you won't be worshipped. You won't have all this shit going on. You probably won't like it, but it will be real, unlike whatever fake shit you're doing here. And then there's just this close-up of Storm's face, of just this reaction that is utterly unreadable before being like, you make a peculiar argument, but sure, I'll come with you. Yeah, he shows up and calls her child, which is just astonishing, considering she just created a typhoon out of nothing. Um, 
Yeah, no, Charles is real, real weird. Alright, the thing that's weird to me is, is, um, did she at some point accept the animal slaughter? Like, these people know her, why do they keep offering? Do they do this every week? Do they just offer her this stuff all the time and she just constantly has to turn them down? I feel like that should be a sign or something. I'll do it anyway, I don't need dead animals to make stuff happen. I would hope that she did not take them up on it at any point, yeah. Uh, this does feel like a good moment to mention Dave Cockrum's art, which I think is pretty stunning throughout. Yeah, like, I think this is one of the high points of the issue visually, of just, like, the swirling way he depicts the wind. And it's like, Storm's half-naked, doesn't have a top on, has this incredibly long hair that's always just, like, flowing just so to cover up just enough chest so that the comics code stamp can stay on the front of it but also do the, like, here's this goddess figure at the same time without getting too horny on panel just yet. Because Chris Claremont's not the writer yet, and the time for horny is an issue away. <laughs> Claremont only scripts the next couple issues. Once he's plotting is when it really gets crazy. As soon as Claremont starts plotting, you just start getting, like, it's, it's nothing but demons and lingerie. Storm's already got her tiara thingy that she wears on her head in this, which I had forgotten that she, like, had that in Africa. Yeah, like, I guess she just kept it. Like, I didn't remember how many visual, like, signifiers and costume elements they, like, came into the team with. Because I just remembered the, like, Professor X whipping up all the costumes. But, yeah, I don't know if there's any specific, I guess, like, cultural, like, art reference that Dave Cockrum was referring to when he designed that headdress, or if it just was something he envisioned, you know, like, I don't know if it's based on anything in particular, but it's iconic at this point, it's lovely, you know, like, if you've seen much Art of Storm, you know the one. Yeah, they, uh, when they bring it back in the next set of movies, they need to, they need to give her a headdress, it doesn't have to be exactly this, but, like, Storm needs a headdress or no longer. A headdress with a mohawk might be difficult to work out, but <laughs> doable. Um, yeah, we were talking about Cockrum and Claremont, which made me realize I forgot at the top to do just a real quick uh, name call of the creative team. So I'll go ahead and do that real quick. I'm just the writer here is Lynn Wayne. Uh, he's also credited as editor. Dave Cockrum on Illustrator. Uh, Glennis Wayne, also known as Glennis Oliver. Oliver, yeah. Oliver on coloring, and then John Costanza is the letterer. And then Chris Claremont's not actually credited on this. He's the writer who'll begin taking over X-Men in a limited capacity next issue of, like, scripting, and then within a few issues he'll be fully plotting, fully writing the book, and will then be doing so for almost two decades. It was 16 years, a 16-year run on one book. Utterly incomparable to anything else. But yeah, for now, it's uh, Lynn Wayne scripting, and for what it is, I think most of the writing's been pretty good throughout it. They managed to pack a pretty decent amount of personality into these character introductions. Like, even if they're brief, they sort of tell you who this character is, what archetype they fit, a little bit of what they're bringing thematically solid so far. Uh, yeah, I think you get a good glimpse of every character's personality, and honestly, just the creation of Storm in this issue 
in terms of both design and personality is like more than enough to put this comic above almost every other 70s Marvel comic, frankly. Uh, next we just have Sunfire. He's another character who had previously appeared in the 60s X-Men run, so um, he only gets two panels here, um, basically establishing that he doesn't really want to do it, but he'll do it anyway, because he, he, he would like to. He would like to, but he doesn't want you to think he would like to, but he would like to for him. It's not that he wants to help you, but he's doing it for him, and the world needs him and not you. It needs him and his rising sun flag, which, Ugh. you know, I don't want to belabor the point. If you want a much more just well-developed discussion of Sunfire and just his history as like a flag suit character, check out his episode of the podcast, Cerebro. They go into it. But yeah, mostly he's just, he's really hateful, but I like him a lot. And as the episode or as the issue goes on, the upper characters are literally calling him racial slurs. So, like, I can't blame him for being hateful. And, like, if Professor Rex showed up at my house, I'd probably hate him too. So, I'm not calling him a hateful of an insult. He's very fun. Yeah, I, I would quit the team twice in one, ish, uh, one page as well if I were him, Frank. So, yeah, this is the weirdest page of the comic um, where the page where we finish the Storm story also has both panels where we see Sunfire being brought onto the team. And then there's another two panels that start introducing Colossus. It's a weird thing with the layout with this, uh, with the pacing in this comic, where scene breaks will happen within panels and not at turning the page, which for something that for most of it is so episodic is very strange. Like, I don't remember that many comics where you'll have an entirely new location show up on the bottom half of a page with like a panel or two and then you turn the page and it's just this whole seat set at that new location i normally you would have less going on than that it means you have to read it pretty closely because you'll like cut from japan to russia just right there and it almost looks like an establishing shot for japan except now the buildings look different for some reason it's very weird it's very much just like it's sort of the opposite of what would one would think of as being a to-do in visual storytelling in terms of just how crammed it is. Like, it very much gives the sense of we have so much we have to cram in this page count, even though it's longer by a little bit than just like a standard comic. Like, I feel like that's got to be it, just that they were like, we have to introduce seven characters in such a small amount of time that, like, Sunfire and uh, Banshee already exist. Cool. We're giving them two panels apiece, giving the rest of the time to everyone else, and make it work, I guess. Yeah, I think it's just how much they have to cram it, because this issue covers so much, which is why, like, for our position with the first episode, we're only doing one issue, because this is one heck of an issue, frankly. Yeah. After Sunfire, like you said, it switches to Russia with Colossus, with another memorable entrance, because we get the tractor that, for some reason, is plowing away with no driver, don't know what happened to the driver, is just about to run over a little girl who will later be retconned to be his uh, little sister, Liana. Oh, so, she's his sister in this. Oh, she, yeah. she's just unnamed. Um, right, like, I don't, I don't think they call her Liana yet? No, no, they don't call her Liana yet, but, like, no, I'm pretty sure it still exists. Okay, but basically you get this visual of, like, 
in one panel, he's running normal humanoid form, looking like determined but freaked out. And then there's this panel of just like crackling energy. And then the one after that is him running at the camera or like at the reader, fully meddled up with just like this crackling, like white and pink sort of rendition of energy behind him. Just like conveying the sheer like force and strength of this transformation before he goes to like save his sister and doesn't have time to run away from the tractor. So he just stands there and it hits him and it just crumbles and breaks and he's fine. And then he hears a voice in his head. Professor Xavier comes up. They have a little bit of shouldn't my powers go to the state because it's doing a very specific sense of just like I guess just like an American writer in 1975 writing a Russian character. In Soviet Russia, powers go to state. Yeah, exactly. It's doing that. And then he has just a brief moment of just being like, Mama, Papa, what should I do? And they basically give him his blessing to go off Carl Xavier and join the team. Uh, and then we cut to, I'd say this is another memorable uh, introduction for the intro for John Proudstar. Uh, who would be Thunderbird, he's a Native American character, an Apache. It's him tackling a buffalo with his bare hands. Yeah, this, especially given that it was a white writer, a lot of his stuff that he's thinking about the Apache, I think, read pretty, pretty dicey. I don't want to speak too much to it, because I'm white too. But, like, there's definitely a lot of the stuff with John in this issue. Uh, I mean, Charles is definitely very mixed. Uh, but also John seems to have like a lot of self-hatred as a Native American character um, and a lot of anger like both towards white people and his own uh, but basically Charles controls him onto the team by saying that perhaps the Apache are all frightened selfish children which is wow Charles this I think this is the worst he gets on this issue yeah Charles Xavier and his judgmental eyebrows have no time for PC kind language when it comes to assembling this team. He covered the basics of it, which is like how the writing here is. I think that Thunderbird had the potential laid out here to be a really interesting character. Uh, spoiler warning if you don't have the same like knowledge of X-Men and Marvel history that we do. Thunderbird will die literally an issue or two after this, so he never really has the chance to develop. But of what's laid out here, it's like, I'm interested in this character. You know, he has the sort of internalized hatred that you mentioned of, like, frustration at white people, uh, frustration with the other people live on his reservation, just sort of, like, really unhappy and not feeling, I guess, a sense of communal joy with anyone around him. Which, you know, is just the makings for good conflict and an interesting character. Unfortunately, we won't get to see any of that develop, but we do get to see him say, and you can stuff a cactus custer, which, <laughs> what you said about how this is written, I think that quote about sums up the delivery of racial politics in this scene and with this character between Matt and just Xavier's explicit like racist goading on yeah i i kind of wish that john had gotten to live but um his brother jimmy is a really interesting character who's brought in later um for new mutants and x-force and um, 
he's great, and I really like him in a lot of books. And John recently came back, as in, what was that, like two months ago? They brought him back to life at last for the first time. Um, he's probably, now Uncle Ben is the only guy who's going to come back. Like, does time travel count? If time travel counts, Uncle Ben's been back. Did Nick Spencer not bring him back? Nick Spencer did not bring Uncle Ben back. He brought back a lot of people, and he did like a lot of weird nonsense, but Uncle Ben did not show up in that run, thank goodness. <laughs> Uncle Ben's deal, secret deal with Mephisto. <laughs> God. Um, Non-Spider-Man-wise, Thunderbird is the last character to get introduced to the cast here. After this, it skips forward in time a little bit. We get this flash page of everyone hanging out on the stairwell in their new costumes, just being really happy with the way that Xavier has Jumbo carnation them up, and just being like, what weird costumes, I've never seen clothes like these, and it's just like, yada yada yada, unstable molecules, comic book bullshit, now let me tell you why you're here. At which point Sunfire's like, fucking tell me why you're here, I'm gonna leave. And it's just like, calm down, and then Cyclops busts in and basically delivers the plot setup that we went over a little bit earlier of the X-Men, the original team, had gone to the island, and Cyclops is the only one who made it out, and they need to go to the island. They don't yet know it's called Sokoa, and hope to rescue the original team. Before they can do that, Sunfire says, Incorrect, Cyclops. Now you go back to Krakoa. Not I. I'll have no part in this fool's errand. Which spurs Cyclops to say, I don't understand, Sunfire. We offer you a chance to help your fellow mutants, and... And he then gets cut off as Sunfire says, I do not even like my fellow mutants, Cyclops. I certainly will not risk my life to help them. Sunfire is my favorite character in this comic. Now, as you mentioned earlier with the Storm slash Colossus slash Sunfire page earlier... There's a lot of transitions mid-page, and so on this exact same page where Sunfire quits, the team is already in the air on the jet, and Sunfire is flying in the air outside of them, and it's just like, open the fuck up, what are you waiting for? And Nightcrawler asks, so the prodigal mutant returns, why did you change your mind, Sunfire, afraid to go home alone? And he just replies, my reasons are nobody's business but my own, Misfit. You do well to remember that. Doesn't explain. Don't know why he quit. Don't know why he came back. I guess he just feels like letting off some steam and thinks he'll be able to attack something, maybe. He's just here to be angry, and I would be angry at these people, too. Yeah, he just leaves the book, like, pretty much immediately after this issue. Like, he's not in any of the Claremont one, really, aside from one or two stories that are set in Japan. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, Sunfire quitting and leaving on the same page is absolutely magnificent. That is, that is some king shit. That's so good. Um, I, I don't like how he talks to Nightcrawler. Yeah, it's basically all of the characters, well, not literally all of them, multiple characters throughout this and the classic X-Men stuff that we'll talk about afterward early on are very much just like, you look like the fucking devil. And everyone's just mean to Nightcrawler. Besides how Sunfire talks, though, also don't like the way that everyone else talks to Sunfire, because as I mentioned, one of them literally uses a racial slur to refer to him at one point, and it's just like, yeah, you should quit. You should, in fact, not spend time with these people. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. 
How is he flying? Because I would assume it's a human torch thing where he uses the heat to fly because his power is fire. But he's not on fire when all of these flying scenes. He's just flying around normally. I'm like, what is does he, does he also fly? Does he have fire powers and flight powers? I thought it was the same power. I think they're separate, and that they just, like, started mixing the two later on, like, once he got, like, that cool, like, Age of Apocalypse outfit from that point, it was just like, he always looks cool on fire, but I think he always could fly, mm-hmm. and it was just separate, but eventually they're like, the Human Torch thing is much cooler. Yeah, this looks weird, and it's it's... Not helped that I think not only is the costume like dicey, but um, he's got the least good looking costume in my opinion. I really like the mask though. The it's mask just is weirdly great. shaped. Like I don't even know how to. Do- like it's not literally like a starfish, but it like the points go out all dramatic and it's very fun. But yeah, for the matter, it's just the rising sun flag, which like all the red is bold, but it's the rising sun flag. It's the, the mask like comes to the upper lip, which I think is my favorite thing about it. Most of these masks end on the nose for superheroes, or they cover the whole face. And his goes down to his upper lip, which just is very different look. So yeah, I like the mask. The rest of the outfit is kind of eh. Um, oh, my favorite thing uh, that happens next is that they all jump out of the plane, and poor Wolverine has to jump out with Banshee, who, if, if you don't know, flies by screaming at the top of his lungs. So he's able to fly you down safely, but he has to go ah! all the way down. <laughs> Which doesn't help Wolverine food at all. Wolverine, at least. Is it established here that he has a healing factor? Are we to even assume that he's healing eardrums as this happens? Because I don't think it's mentioned in this issue, and I don't know if it's mentioned in the Hulk or not, or if he literally just had claws. I don't know. So far, based on this, I'm not even sure the claws are meant to be inside his body yet, because he's got these little metal notches on his gloves and they pop out of those, and, like, it does look like they're coming from his body, but, like, yeah, yeah, no, there's so little... Wolverine is the most mysterious character, and that you know nothing about this guy at all, aside from Canadian and angry. He's not even short yet, I don't think. He's not especially shorter than anyone else in anything that I've noticed so far. Not, like, dramatically so, at least, yeah. He's literally, what's his mutant power even? We don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, like you said, they're all dropping out of the plane. They split up on the island. They all, like, drop out in pairs, which I don't know if tactically it's just supposed to cover more ground, I guess. But basically, they all just get attacked by various, like, wild mutated plants and animals one of the best parts of this issue is giant crabs attacking which i forgot about when rereading this the most recent time and a consistent theme on this show is going to be me shouting out and enjoying giant animals (laughs) so i'll have to pick various things of giant animals for you to talk about in giant monster comics but those are fun um Character-wise, these scenes mostly just have the pairs bickering, so it's mostly just establishing how unhappy everyone is to be here. They all hate each other. It's it's like that thing that they do in Fantastic... They, well, they did in Fantastic Four before this, where, like, the family will fight occasionally, but just everyone hates each other, and they also all met five minutes ago, and I'm not entirely sure why most of them are here. It's great, though. Um, yeah, Banshee and Wolverine fighting the crabs. 
is the best of these little sequences. But it's also um, Stoll managing to blow some rocks away from her and Colossus, and um, Cyclops and Thunderbird getting like choked out by some vines. It all just sort of happens. Um, the X-Men are living on Kokoa now, and we have not seen a single giant crab yet, and I'm deeply disappointed. I want the giant crabs back. Giant Krakoan crab for the next X-Men election. That's what I would like. Just a giant fucking crab. I like giant monsters. Like, I have nothing of substance to say about why they're cool. They just are. Is our collective Dream X-Men team beak leading an army of giant crab monsters? Pretty much, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I, I would read that. After they do some paired shenanigans, basically each of these paired scenes ends with them going, what's that giant temple in the distance? And so they all converge upon a common point again, where they find the rest of the original X bound up in goopy, Krakoan innards, I guess, just green vines and shit. And they get everyone chopped down from the hanging vines. They start to take them out. They feel the earth shaking, and as the original X-Men wake up, Angel's just like, Cyclops, why did you come back for us? Don't you realize you were sent back for a reason to get more food, because the mutant is the island itself. And this page ends with a bit of the earth rising up, and we see these gelatinous red eyes. And then you turn the page, and it's this lovely splash image a Krakoa, this gigantic, earthen, viney, humanoid, like, man-thing, but make it the size of a skyscraper. And to the side, we also get these really fun panels that are just explaining his origin of basically how Krakoa was an island that an atomic bomb was dropped on and testing, and that somehow mutated the island life, wherein all of the living creatures evolved while also gaining like a shared intelligence until they became Krakoa, the island that walks like a man. And it's all just very menacing and very campy and very fun. And there's specifically this panel of like Krakoa's brain looking like something out of Mars attacks. And it's just fun to behold. Yeah, I, I love all this. And I'm especially entertained by it because in the context of current X-Men books, this makes no sense at all. This has nothing to do with what Kokoa is like now in the books, aside from, I guess, Living Island. But yeah, it's great. Um, thinking about it, looking at the temple in this, would that, I assume, then be ruins of like the civilization that used to live on Kokoa that Apocalypse was a part of? Like, obviously, they didn't know that at the time, but like, that's Otherwise, the temple makes no sense. Why is there a temple on the island? It just got nuked. I think that's a good idea for retroactive continuity, yeah. Uh, listeners, if you don't know what we're talking about, it's contemporary X-Men stuff, and we will talk about it eventually, because we'll absolutely end up picking some of those stories at some point. Basically, ancient mutant civilizations living on islands. Yeah. That's a good explanation for the temple that's randomly there for no reason. Uh, two parts spectacular on Pentatore. Will two be enough? <laughs> a 22 part spectacular on Pentatore. That might, that might give us enough time to dive into it. Um, yeah, Krakoa's just fun. Just 
big pointed fangs, just really lovely man fang style, swampy marsh design. Like I'm a sucker for that in any character design, man fang, swamp fang, vegetable men. But it's really the eyes for me. Just these gigantic red jelly beans. Like he looks silly, but he's so fun and like even as a kid I always loved Krakoa. And I'm glad that he's finally back and doing shit now because it's just such a brilliant character idea that's so ridiculous that it needed to come back and now have. He had a bunch of kids. There was like the one that was the lawn for the X Mansion, and then there's the one that was like just in the ocean and wanted to destroy the world because the X Men killed his dad. I think there's been others. There's, there's been like a couple Krakoa too. Did they ever explain what the lawn one came if they did, I don't remember it. I barely read any of the Wolverine and the X-Men series. Wasn't my cup of tea, personally. Yeah, that's fair enough. It really wasn't that good. Once Krakoa uh, stands up, looks menacing. Basically, it's just a gigantic extended fight scene. Um, you can talk about whatever parts you want. I really don't have a lot to say about it. It really just ends in Polaris fucking up the gravity of the entire Earth to send him flying into space. Like, the art's fun, you know, like we said, Cochran's work here throughout is quite nice. It's dynamic, the action is fun. There's lots of just ridiculous comic booky like, energy lines that are pleasing to look at. But it basically just amounts to everyone shooting energy beams at Krakoa until he goes off into space. Um, there's a visualization of, like, Xavier and Krakoa having a mind fight, which I think is really neat, where they're both in, like, the background of a, of a page um, in, like, a, a sort of yellowy color with uh, pink energy blasts going between them, like, between their heads. The the whole end where, like, Storm and Polaris use their powers in unison to, like, make Krakoa not affected by gravity so it flies into space was, uh, apparently, that was Claremont who came up with that. Even from the jump, him already fully involved. It's just interesting to think about. He really, he steered the X-Men like no one else ever has or ever will. Um, the ultimate Storm Sand. The, the invention of the concept of Storm Sanding. <laughs> and the one who made Storm work standing. But yeah, they send Krakoa off into space and into obscurity for about 45 years before he would really matter again. With the island going off, everyone's just like, oh wait, the ocean's gonna fill that space, we're gonna drown. Iceman whips up a little snowball that they all survive in until they can make their way back to the jet and go home. And it ends with Angel asking the telltale question, what are we going to do with 13 x the question, of course, being, we're going to get rid of all the old ones, except for Cyclops. And he's just going to be the experienced and no-nonsense field leader, dealing with all these new characters that the rest of the X-Men don't like. And they're all like, let's go to college. Yeah, I think basically, just like over the course of the next issue, most of these people just leave. Surprisingly enough, not the people who have been saying they hate the Well, some finally leave. And he actually stays gone. He make, he doesn't come back on that page. He just stays off. That is a disappointment. Uh, we also wanted to talk about, so, 
in the when was Classic Hex thing done? It was it like the eighties they started doing it? Oh uh, yeah, number one is cover dated September nineteen eighty six. Yeah, eighty six. Um, so they started doing this thing called Classic X-Men, where they would reprint, uh, the old issue, and then they had additional backup to, like, make it worth buying if you didn't own the original, but it was also a good way to, like, at that time, read the original stories, because they weren't, they didn't do trades, and you didn't, you weren't able to go on Marvel Unlimited, which is what I do for, uh, for my X-Men reading, mostly. Um, so this one, just... Basically, it's it's most of it's the original story, and then there's a couple new additions that we wanted to quickly talk about. Um, so yeah, the first is an expansion of the sequence where Cyclops comes back and like explains what went on to um, Xavier on Krakoa, like before he Xavier goes off to go and recruit the new X Men. So explaining what happens like the original team on Krakoa. Uh, I think it's mostly interesting for an expansion of, like, Cyclops' angst about his powers, because Krakoa, like, feeds on mutants like a vampire, and for some reason this made his eyes not shoot big, giant laser beams, they're not lasers, optic blasts for a little while, and then they start coming back while he's talking to Xavier, and he wrecks some stuff just by looking at it, and then has to go back to having his ridiculous glasses on again and he's really angsty about it he thought for a second that he could live like a normal life it's like scott you just have to wear glasses but okay yeah it like gives him a bit more time in the spotlight in the story as opposed to in the original where he very much didn't get all that much time just because of how much paid time paid time introduced all the new characters beyond that after the wrap-up of the original story we get several pages of, like, that night at the X-Mansion as the new characters and the old are all sort of feeling each other out. Professor Xavier is being himself and <laughs> violating everyone's privacy by reading everyone's mind around the mansion and just finds that, like, most of the old X-Men are already planning on leaving because they've been wanting to, and now they're, like, well, now these people can do our job, so we can go. Which is very much what's happening all around. And we get a few scenes of obligatory fighting of Iceman being like, who the fuck are you all to call yourselves X-Men? Where are the X-Men? I'm an X-Man, even though I'm going to quit tomorrow. And then we get a bit more of, like, the other characters just continuing to be dicks about Nightcrawler's appearance and... I don't know when the first instance of it in the actual comics was before this, like, looking back add-on, but we get this add-on of what is continuity-wise, I suppose, meant to be Wolverine's first time creeping on Jean Grey, which ends with Angel dive-bombing him and just being like, you're not good enough for her, and then Jean going to Professor X and being like, I need to leave. Because I love Scott, and also, Wolverine is hot, and I need to leave. It's not great. Yeah, Wolverine is very creepy, but also, like, Angel is very condescending to Jean. Like, Jean's a superhero. She can, she can handle it. This guy has knives in his hands. 
she can lift things with her mind. She'll be alright. He's like condescending to Jean, but also Angel is even worse to Storm. Because let me find it. He says, he doesn't appreciate the possibilities the way I do. You, Storm, me, us, making beautiful music together, a symphony, a symphony of motion and emotion. It's something better explained with thieves, not wars, starting with a kiss. So he's just flying up in the air telling Storm that he wants to fuck right after he met her. Yeah, yeah, it's, he's a billionaire. Can he not find a better way of showing off? Like, just open the fire of a drink. Where's Candy at? You're right, he is probably cooked. Yeah, no, he is. He's dating Candy at this point, because they just date from the 60s onward. God damn it, Angel. Terrible. Between between Storm and Dazzler? Yeah, okay. Uh, Angel, terrible boyfriend. Um, the bit of this backup I like the most is it's probably the only moment of uh, Thunderbird, like, trying to be friendly with people. And I think this whole, possibly his entire publication history up until, um, is, 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 is Giants have fun to put this month? Next month? It's soon, yeah. Up until the present day. Yeah. Because uh, this man's only been in, like, I, I'll be generous and say six issues of comics that aren't flashbacks. Um, and so he's trying to get Iceman to, like, show him around the mansion. But Iceman, who is already annoyed because he had to, um, as far as I can tell, look at Nightcrawler, freezes his entire body while telling him to get the hell out of his house. Which, like, it's it's not your house, Bobby. It's Charles's house. And Charles invited Thunderbird here, and for some reason, for some reason, John said okay. I don't know why John is here. But John is here, and you should not be a dick about it. Um, yeah, like, the characters are behaving directly, but I like these scenes. Like, it's just, in the spirit of, like, the original giant size, it's just emphasizing, that's not a word, emphasizing these inner group conflicts of just, here's the tensions, all these people showed up, we are not getting along at all. I know, it's just an interesting read, you know? It is drama, it is conflict, it is what propels a story, and there's still little bits of humanity in between, of, like, I especially just like what continues to happen with Thunderbird and with Nightcrawler, of just, you know, their sympathetic sides and just the potential of characters that's being built here to be developed later on. Yeah, um, oh, and the art, the writing to this I know is by Clown. I think the art is John Bolton. I think it's mostly quite good. Banshee looks a little weird, but, like, he just looks different in his early, well, he looks really bad in his first appearances. And then in these, he's drawn like a normal person. And then his appearance changes pretty drastically. I think under Burn, is that where Banshee gets hot? Because it's not here. Maybe I I didn't really know that Banshee was a character people thought was hot until listening to Cerebro. <laughs> so I don't know if it's a burn thing or if it's like not till Generation X or what. He at least looks like a human being, which is different from in the nineteen sixties. So he's on the up and up. 
Uh, you know, I think his 1960s appearance is based on like some really nasty uh, anti-Irish propaganda. So very glad they changed that uh, for these appearances. Uh, he looks very normal. Thank goodness. Do you have any other thoughts on classic X-Men before we steer to the recreation special? Charles Xavier is a creep. That's it. There you go. Done. It's so weird. He spies on everything. He's even talking to Gene like, oh, I monitored your interaction with Logan and Warren last night. It's like, what? why? Why Why are you like this? Just stay out of people's heads, Charles. That's it. Yeah. Professor Xavier off to a bad start, as usual. Uh, the upper main issue we wanted to just give a quick shout out to is Giant Size X-Men Tribute to Wayne and Cockrum. From November 2020, this is essentially a redraw project. Uh, Wayne and Cockrum were both uh, deceased by this point, and they essentially had a bunch of contemporary Marvel artists redraw all of Giant Size X-Men number one with a different artist doing an individual page. And the script is for the most same, just the Lynn Wayne script. They cut out like a few of the racial slurs and things like that, but otherwise it's basically just the same script. Thunderbird is less ableist. Also that. Yeah. Basically just polished a few things up. And it's an interesting project. I kind of wish they would do things like this more because I'd be interested to see other examples of just say like a classic Spidey issue in this fashion, things like that. They should do Amazing Fantasy number 15. I would love to see that. Yeah, exactly. Stuff like that. I think it just kind of varies in quality by the page in terms of artistic tastes, you know, of like Standout for Me or like Chris Samney, uh, Chris Anka. The big one is um, Rod Rice, right? R-E-I-S. Um, I think it's Bob Rice. Okay who gets to do the classic Krakoa splash page with the big bulging eyes and is unquestionably the most beautiful page in this comic. It's like, doesn't really change the original. It's like very faithful to the layout, which like the pages throughout kind of vary in how strictly they follow the original compositions or not. But this is just a really faithful recreation, but it's just very beautifully painted big monster, so it's fun. Yeah, I really love that Krakoa page. Um, Chris Samney's page earlier on during the Nightcrawler sequence is really great. Um, I really like how he draws Nightcrawler. I need to see if he's done any of that um, Nightcrawler solo series they did, because I think so, but I know uh, Samney on the Daredevil stuff, which is really great. And then I wanted to shout out the um, Lennel Hughes art is something I go back and forth on, but the Page they chose for this, which is one where um, Cyclops is having a freak out about his eyes and is like dazed and confused um, after flying back from Krakoa. Um, I think it was a really good choice for like his specific art style. I think they did that a couple times, so they picked like a, a very good choice of an artist. Like the big splash group shot is Mark Brooks, which just makes sense. Um, the big artistic sort of showy off first page with the X, original X-Men team in the background and the new team like in front with the full sort of energetic look is Alex Ross. Like, I think they did a good choice of picking which artists do 
what pages, generally speaking. Um, and then it's just like your personal taste will vary on the different art styles. But I think they're all they're all very good. Yeah, like there's a Phil Noto page, and it's largely just like one of the in-betweens of characters talking, but Phil Noto just drawn pretty people, so it works. Um, like I said, I like most of this. There's a page or two where like the artistic choice will have like a sudden like big whiplash tonally. Like there's a few pages where it's suddenly, specifically in the Thunderbird part, one of the pages is so much more exaggerated and the characters are like caricatures, very cartoony, don't know how to describe it exactly. It's just like much less action comic looking aesthetic. And it sort of looks like an aesthetic one might associate with humor, except it's when Charles is being racist to Thunderbird. So it's a very weird tonal whiplash that's yes. kind of unfortunate to look at. That line is left in, of course, because Charles being terrible is just an accepted fact at this point. Yeah. Um, oh, I really love the page before that with. Um... Thunderbird taking down the buckle, I think the changes to the original composition work really well um, on that one. Uh, which artist is that? That's 15. Oh, my page numbers don't match up with the artist page numbers. Hang on. I, this is not an artist I immediately recognize. I can find it in the print copy. Juan uh, Cabal and Federico Lee. I believe I got this right. Yeah, that page works really well. I heard the last one. Um, the sense of speed, especially when he's chasing the buffalo, is very nicely done. Yeah, it's a pretty book. It's a cool, special, well worth checking out if you are interested in classic X-Men stuff. Do you have any more thoughts on this one? Um, not really. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, it obviously shouldn't replace reading the original. So, like, read the original and then read this. Um, there's some nice interviews at the back. Um... Yeah, that's about it. With that, I guess, in wrap-up, looking back on it, almost 50 years later, how do you like Giant Size X-Men number one? Does it hold up for you? I don't know if hold up is the right word. I think, certainly in the context of its time, I think it's great. I think it's filled with fun ideas. If Marvel published this now, I would be bothered by it. But, like, I think it's a fantastic uh, piece of work for its time. Yeah, it's just one of those interesting historic landmarks of, I would argue, the most important X-Men comic to ever exist. Like, and I don't yeah. think there's a lot that could even compare it. It's like the only thing I could even see arguing would be X-Men number one in terms of the franchise existing at all. But I would still put this because this is why the franchise matters. Uh, for context, I assume you mean uh, 60s X-Men number one, the series would eventually become a canny X-Men, and not X-Men number one from uh, the Jim Lee days in the 90s. Yeah, 60s, not Jim Lee. Yeah. Um, talking about comics in number one is really annoying, especially now. There's like 12 comics you could be saying when you say X-Men number one now. Yeah. Um, with that said, though, we will be diving into plenty more comics and confusing number orders and everything as we just continue on recording and talking about good comics, but I think this was a pretty good start. Uh, yeah, you should always start out with the best, 
And um, I do think this really is one of the best issues from Marvel in that decade. I think full stop in that decade. And this is the only reason that you have heard of the X-Men now. Actually, scratch that. The Eternals got a movie at this point. And okay. an alternate world. And the alternate Earth. There is a world wherein the Eternals had a critically acclaimed 90s TV show. And the X-Men had a critically canned 2020 live-action film. Uh, Giant-sized Eternals number one would have been something to